You're listening to Murder Not Murdering with Aaron and Autumn, a true crime podcast about murder and murdering. But we are not murderers. Welcome to our 20th episode. I cannot believe we're at episode 20. It's very exciting. And I wish our viewers, not our viewers, our listeners could view you right now. (laughs) So you're just going to call me out like that? Yes, you do it to me. It is only fair. (laughs) Okay, here's the deal. I'm sitting in my office slash recording room and I'm wearing a gray bathrobe. I took a nice shower earlier and I just wanted to wear my big fluffy gray bathrobe and Autumn thinks it's hilarious. I don't know why I find it so funny, but she comes on the Zoom meeting looking like Hugh Hefner. I do not look like Hugh Hefner. It is a fuzzy gray bathrobe. It was just the best. It was, it was great. Thank you for that. Anyway, (laughs) we're very excited about this being our 20th episode. I can't believe how quickly we got to it. Yes. I mean, I can't believe people want to listen to us for 20 episodes, especially when the first half was about my bathrobe. So there's that. (laughs) Um, I mean, yeah, <laughs> summertime and she's wearing a huge bathrobe. Yeah, but I'm all bougie. I have AC so I can do that. Yeah, that's right. I forgot. She uh, moved into her forever so home and she's bougie now. Yep. Um. Anyway, so it's our 20th episode and I know you wanted to do something special with this one because we've had a lot of requests for um, different cases and there's a couple that keep coming up often and you did our second most requested case or you're doing our second most requested case tonight. Yes. And we couldn't, we just can't, there's the number one requested case. We just can't bring ourselves to cover. Well, you want to talk about it? Yeah. I mean, how do I can't even like say the words because I'll probably cry. (laughs) Well, the number one most requested case is the don't fuck with cats and um, like Luca Magnata. Yes. But both of us seem we both seem to have a big issue with animal abuse. And when animal abuse is in there, we just can't do it. We cover horrible horrible murders. Yes. But at the same time, we're like those innocent animals though. So unfortunately that one is just kind of off the table for us. Yes, uh, we are do, please, please do keep sending us suggestions because we, yes. sure, we sure love them. We do. But that one is just not one we want to cover. It's just Sorry. too sad. It's way too sad. And uh, too, yeah. the too, animal abuse. Yes. Part. 
I can't even, yes, we just can't. And I understand why people would request it. It is, it's, it's a very intriguing case. Yeah, absolutely. But there's just too much animal abuse in it. And we are too much of animal lovers to even fathom talking about that. Exactly. Not that we don't value human lives. We do. (laughs) Because we do. There there are (laughs) innocent victims as well in that. Yes. 100%. But the difference to us is that there's a lesson to be learned or something meaningful happened because of what these tragic things happen to humans, but these animals have no way of voicing or protecting or having anyone advocate for them for the most part. So it's just too sad. Yeah. But the case you are covering tonight is, uh, is a highly requested one and, yes. um, a fairly well-known one. I think most people would have heard of it, but Autumn's going to go over some, you know, different parts of the case. And there's an incredible lesson to be learned through this one. Yes. Yes. And it, I mean, it's probably one of the most, most famous cases I would think in the true crime family. I'd say so. So I'm going to get right on into it. So we can't have this build up anymore because I'm just going to come out with it. (laughs) Say it. Yes. I'm doing the murder of Adam Walsh. Do I start crying now or I know just a heads up everyone. Like I, I have, I like to proofread. I like to read it out loud to make sure it's closed and is smooth. And I cried a couple of times during my reading. Dustin was kind enough to be my proofreader and I cried every single time I read it out loud. So just a heads up, might cry, but it's, it's sad. It is. It's a really sad one. Um, so, so stick around to listen to that right now with us. Can't, can't wait. All right. Jump right in early afternoon on Monday, July 27th, 1981 in Hollywood, Florida, six-year-old Adam John Walsh and his mother, 30-year-old Rave Walsh went in to the Sears department store at the Hollywood mall. Rave had seen a lamp that was on sale and wanted to look at it in person. They entered through the north entrance and Adam saw some older boys playing at an Atari 2600 video game kiosk. He asked his mom if he could wait his turn and play while she shopped. She agreed and went on to the lamp department as planned, which was right around the corner. She made sure to tell him where she would be and promised him ice cream afterwards. Now, video games were just beginning in 1981. So this was like a kid's dream to be able to wait his turn with some older boys to play some video games on this little kiosk. Yeah. And Atari was like blowing up right then. Yes. It was brand new. He was six years old. These older boys, super cool. Like, of, of course he would be like, please, can I play these games? Yeah. Rave left the lamp department around 12, 15 PM, about 10 minutes after leaving Adam and the toy department, taking a little longer than she originally planned. The lamps she wanted were not in stock, and it took a little extra time to order. She headed back to where Adam and the boys were playing at the game kiosk. When she arrived, 
Adam and the boys were not there. She searches the toy department with no luck. This is not like Adam. She asks the store to page him over the intercom system, and she starts to search all areas of the department store looking for the six-year-old. The page goes over the speakers. Adam Walsh, please report to customer service. Reve is convinced that her six-year-old would not know where customer service was. So she asks them to please page him again and asks that he meet her in the toy department. She knew he would know how to find her there. Sure. They frequented Sears and he was familiar with the department store. By pure coincidence, she runs into her mother-in-law, Jean, and the two women grow increasingly worried when they are unable to find Adam. She located a manager who told her there had been a scuffle between the boys over her, who told her there had been a scuffle between the boys over whose turn it was to play the game. And a teenage security guard demanded that the boys leave the store. The security guard had asked the older boys if their parents were at the store with them, and they told him they were not. Adam was a very shy little boy, and he was only six years old. He was too timid to speak up to the security guard to tell him that his mom was there with him that day. The security guard made Adam and the boys exit the Sears through the west entrance not the same entrance that Adam and his mother had come through. After 90 minutes of paging and searching the store, Reve calls the Hollywood police at 1.55 p.m. This is the early 80s. Kidnapping and something sinister happening was not her first thoughts. Because I know if this happened in present time, this would be the very first worry when you're not able to locate a small child. Of course. It was not uncommon for parents to leave their children alone in a department store while they shopped nearby, which is totally different now. A hundred percent. The Hollywood police department was actually located directly across the street from the shopping mall. The police come and act with little urgency. They put out a BOLO, which stands for be on the lookout for a white six-year-old child with blonde hair. They don't interview witnesses, look for evidence, or search for him. They suggest to Reve that he might have walked home. What? Yes. And they didn't even look for him? No. That's fucked up. Yes. She rejects that idea. They, Obviously. They live over a mile away, and he's only six years old. Yeah. He would have no idea how to get home. And what reason would he have for leaving? And you know, like a six-year-old would be like, uh, I need to find my mom. Yes. And she had promised him ice cream after they were done. Then he definitely would have been like, I need to find my mom. Right. He's not just gonna be like, well, I'm going to walk home. No. According to Reve, they just did not seem to take the situation seriously at all. At this point, Adam has been missing for three hours when Reve's husband, John Walsh, arrives at the mall. John is a 35-year-old successful marketing executive. 
he's the kind of person who makes things happen. When things go wrong, he fixes them. He has a commanding presence and he can tell by the look on his wife's face, this is serious. The Walshes do not want to leave the mall without their son. But as the mall is closing down and there is no sign of their little boy, the parents have to do the unthinkable, the unimaginable. See, like I get, see, like right now. It's okay. They have to leave without Adam. Once they have left the mall, they go to the family car to check one last time to see if Adam may be waiting for them there. He is not. They make a bed in the back of the car and leave the doors unlocked in case he returns. They leave a note on the windshield for him that says, Adam, stay in the car. Mommy and daddy are looking for you. They can't bring themselves to go home quite yet. They go across the street to the police department. John is visibly frustrated with the police department. He doesn't understand why they are not out there looking for his son, taking this more seriously. He demands answers. After a total of six hours of Adam being missing at this point, the police finally agree to search for him. And there's a massive search. Friends, family, helicopters, people are walking through the area arm in arm looking for this little boy and no one can find him. On August 10th, 1981, a severed head was found in a drainage canal alongside the Florida Turnpike near Vero Beach by two fishermen. 130 miles from Hollywood, Florida, where Adam went missing. While waiting on the identification, John and Reve made an appearance on national television, hoping their son was still alive and offering a $100,000 reward, which is equivalent to about $280,000 today Yeah, for Adam's safe return. Shortly after that broadcast, the remains were identified as Adams. It's just heartbreaking. Isn't that just so gut-wrenching? It's awful. It's so, so horrible. The coroner ruled the cause of death was asphyxiation. The state of the remains suggested that he had died several days before the discovery. Heartbreakingly, to this day, The rest of his body was never recovered. It's awful. Awful. The case went cold due to lack of evidence and remained that way until October 21st, 1983, two years after the murder of Adam. Otis Toole, while incarcerated for two unrelated murders, confessed to the murder of the six-year-old boy. Otis Elwood Toole was a drifter born in Jacksonville, Florida, who was convicted of six total counts of murder and was the lover of serial killer Henry Lee Lucas, a famous serial killer who claimed to have killed up to 600 victims. My God. 600. That is insane. 
Otis and Henry were notorious for giving confessions and then recanting them. Uh, this, this made his confession of killing Adam questionable at the time. The amount of murder between the two convicted serial killers could take up a few hours on a podcast. So I will only be focusing in on this specific case. Yeah. In his confession, Otis claimed that he had lured Adam into his white 1971 Cadillac, offering him toys and candy, and then drove north on I-95 towards his home in Jacksonville, Florida. Adam was compliant and calm at first, but began to panic the further they got away from the mall. Otis said he then punched him in the face, which made the situation worse. Yes, I mean, hello. (laughs) So he said he would walloped him unconscious. Oh my God. Otis then drove on the Florida turnpike to a deserted service road. When he realized that Adam was still breathing, he strangled him to death with a seatbelt, dragged him out of the car, and decapitated him with the machete. Fucking brutal. I just can't even handle that. No, I don't have any words. He claimed he had wanted to make Adam his adopted son, but that was not going to be feasible. The blood in Otis's car could not be identified. The police ultimately lost the blood-stained carpet from the car, the machete, and eventually the car itself. They lost it? Yes. Everything. How do you Every- lose a car? Great question. Great question. They don't have an answer. Otis was never charged with Adam's murder. He died in prison at 49 years old of cirrhosis in September, 1996, 14 years after the death of Adam. His confession was viewed unreliable as he and Lucas confessed or implicated themselves in more than 200 homicides. Most of Lucas's confessions were later revealed to have been false, having been coerced by the Texas Rangers. Another sepsis. And so there's another suspect. In 2007, according to allegations that earned widespread publicity, Jeffrey Dahmer, who was arrested in Wisconsin in 1991 after killing more than a dozen men and boys, was also named as a suspect in Adam's murder. Really? Yes. Dahmer's father called the America's Most Wanted hotline soon after his son's arrest to claim that he believed that his son was a pedophile. Dahmer was living in Miami Beach at the time of Walsh's murder, and two eyewitnesses placed him at the mall on the day that Adam was abducted. One claimed to have seen a strange man walking into the toy department. The other said that he was a young, blonde man with a protruding chin he saw him throw a struggling child into a blue van and sped off. Both witnesses recognized the man they had seen as Dahmer when pictures of him were released in the newspapers after his arrest. Reports revealed that the delivery shop where Dahmer worked had a blue van at the time. He preyed on young men and boys, the youngest being eight years older than Adam. 
His MO included severing his victims' heads. When he was interviewed about Adam Walsh in 1992, Dahmer repeatedly denied his involvement in the crime. He stated, I've told you everything, how I killed them, how I cooked them, who I ate. Why wouldn't I tell you if I did it to someone else? Yeah. After this rumor surfaced, John Walsh stated that he had seen no evidence linking Adam's abduction and murder to those that were committed by Dahmer. Yeah, it's just the sensationalized. Mm-hmm. It's just sad. It's The whole thing is so awful and sad, but, you know, to bring it up again and to think that, it, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer, obviously awful, you know. Yes, like another prolific serial killer. Yes. It's like, it's just like a constant rip, pulling the rug out from under you. Yes. No new evidence has come to light since then. And police announced on December 16th, 2008, that the Walsh case was closed and that they were satisfied that Tool was the killer. Oh. The Walsh family agrees. And John Walsh specifically has said that he has always known it was Otis Tool. Really? Tel- mm-hmm. He, he's he has no doubt in his mind that it was tool that that confession that he gave was 100% accurate, even though he had such a track record of saying things and then recanting sure, but he them. also, he also had a track record of actually being a murderer. Yes. And Adam was wearing green shorts when he was abducted and murdered. And during one of the evidence findings of evidence at tools home, they found green shorts that they believe belong to Adam. Oh my God. The television film Adam premiered on October 10th, 1983. The film was based on Walsh's kidnapping and murder, and it attracted 38 million viewers on its first airing. Each of its three broadcasts in 1983, 1984, and 1985 were followed by pictures and descriptions of missing children. A hotline was created to take calls that may have materialized into leads for investigators. The pictures and hotline were credited with finding 13 of the 55 children shown, which is incredible to me. Yeah, absolutely. Code Adam, by the late 1990s, By the late 1990s, many malls, department stores, supermarkets, and other such retailers have adopted what is known as Code Adam, a movement first started by Walmart in the southeastern United States. A Code Adam is announced when a child is missing in a store or if a child is found by a store employee or customer. If the child is lost or missing, all doors will be locked and a store employee is posted at every exit, while description of the child is genuinely broadcast over the intercom system. Code Adam, as a term, has become synonymous with a missing child and is a predecessor to an Amber Alert, which serves as a system of broadcast-driven community notifications. In 1984, the U.S. Congress passed the Missing Children's Assistant Act, 
owing in part to the advocacy of the Walshes and other parents of missing children. It allowed the formation of the National Center for Missing Children and Exploited Children. These are all of the things that have come to light because of what happened to Adam. The Code Adam Program for Helping Lost Children in Department Stores is named in Adam's memory. The U.S. Congress passed the Adam Walsh Child Protection and Safety Act on July 25, 2006, and President George W. Bush signed it into law on July 27th, which was the day Adam was killed. The signing ceremony took place on the South Lawn of the White House, attended by John Ann Revae. The bill institutes a national database of convicted child molesters and increases penalties for sexual and violent offenses against children. The Adam Walsh Reauthorization Act of 2016, which provides budgetary allotments to continue programs based in the 2006 Act, was incorporated into HR, the Survivor's Bill of Rights Act of 2006 and enacted and signed by President Obama on October 7, 2016. John Walsh also became very famous for America's Most Wanted, The Hunt with John Walsh, The Justice Network, and In Pursuit with John Walsh. I just feel like he's like the voice, the first voice of true crime. Yes, 1,000%. After Adam's death, the Walshes had three more children, Megan, born in 1982, Callahan, born in 1985, and Hayden, born in 1994. Megan was born a year after Adam was murdered, and Reve Walsh told local newspapers at the time that there's no substitute for Adam. Of course not. She also said, Megan will make me miss Adam even more. He always wanted a sister, which breaks my heart. Hayden and Callahan sometimes are on the shows with their father. They've been on America's Most Wanted. And Callahan is now on In Pursuit with John Walsh. He's one of the co-hosts of that series. It's actually really good. It's on the ID channel. And I think he is so much like his dad. Yeah. It, it tells the stories of victims and their families looking for justice for their murdered loved ones. This past July marked 40 years since this tragic murder. I think about the six-year-old little boy who died and his powerhouse of a dad who fought to not let it be in vain and saved countless children's lives because of it. He would have been 46 years old. How can we not think of him and be so grateful for what came because of it, but so heartsick for the loss of a human life that could have changed the world? After all, he was and is John Walsh's son. I just, it's a six-year-old. I know it's awful. It's horrible. I just can't even imagine the fucking heartbreak. No, I can't. I, I cannot put myself in those shoes just because I have an eight-year-old. Yes. You know, it's, <laughs> it was like the sunshine of the world. Like I couldn't even imagine. No, Mm-mm. it just, it's awful and heartbreaking 
it is true. So many people have been saved because of mm-hmm. that act, but it is heartbreaking. And there's no, there's no word for that kind of loss. No. And there's no, no way to explain that kind of loss. You know, you can't rationalize it. No, and it's just horrible. And it's yes. So many missing children have been found. And yes, there's that Adam code, which is amazing because if that had happened for him, maybe he would still be here. Sure. But I mean, I'm sure his family would trade every single thing that has ever come of it for him to be back. Yeah. Of course. You Oh God. Yeah. That, I mean, it was so horrible and I just, and, and the sad thing is, is that the, if you think about it, so tool never was like officially convicted because you can't convict somebody who's dead. Yes. He get, he get a, he made a confession, but it was never sure. official. And the fact that they lost all of the DNA evidence and they lost the vehicle, the DNA evidence, the murder weapon, supposedly like And John Walsh has been very, very vocal about how the Hollywood police department botched this case from the very beginning. And I 1000%, I mean, they were, they, when they showed up to take the statement from his mom, they were just basically like, Oh, I think you walked home. Oh, you do. Yeah. That's what you think happened. Well, and they didn't, and they didn't do an immediate search, which just blows my mind. They weren't going to even search for him at all until they went back to the police department because they couldn't bring themselves to go home. Yeah. It's just, the whole thing is so tragic. It is very tragic. So tragic. And I mean, I'm, I'm very, very glad that John and the family believe with their whole heart that Otis was the person responsible because I feel like closure. Yes, exactly. I feel like it brings some closure and I'm so glad that they have that. Cause I can't even imagine. No. And, the, and there's, I mean, of course, again, the, I don't even think it needs to be reiterated that they would trade their son for any of the accolades or any of the things that they've done over the years. But, you know, the amount of people that have been caught through America's most wanted or anything Mm -hmm. that John Walsh has done is incredible. Not just missing children, but like the amount of just straight human beings. Yes. (laughs) 100%. And he's very passionate about it and he's very good. Yeah. Very good. He's a, like I said, he's a powerhouse and well, and like I, like I was saying, he's the voice of the original voice of true crime. That's what my brain immediately Mm-hmm. Here's his voice right off the bat. Yes. Like America's most wanted. Oh, yep. Mm-hmm. I know who that is. Like exactly. everyone knows who that is. Exactly. And everyone, I feel like everyone knows the story yeah. of his son, but I, there was a lot of things I didn't know. Like I didn't realize that she was just gone for 10 minutes Yeah, or that the security guard was a teenager. He was 17 years old and he ordered these children out on their own, out onto the streets. Yeah. Like, and my, I mean, maybe they were making a ruckus or whatever they said, a scuffle or whatnot, but they're kids. But ordinarily they would have held them there and called their parents or called the police and the police could have dealt with finding yes. the parents and all of that. And Adam was six years old. You're putting the six-year-old out on the freaking street 
outside of a Sears department store. Like, I mean, I'm not trying to shame this 17 year old, but holy crap. I can't believe that happened. I know it's, it's crazy. And also, you know, like nowadays we have better camera systems and Mm -hmm. all of that too, which would have been helpful. Yes, it would have definitely been helpful. And Um, I mean, and it's also just terrifying to think that he was put out, I mean, in a span of what, 10 minutes, mm -hmm. he was outside and a predator picked him up in that time frame. Yeah. That's awful. I mean, I feel like I, you know, it, it's all of those things that sparked that like stranger danger and, Mm-hmm. You know, all of those things came later on. I remember, I mean, you and I are both children of the eighties and I remember very much that being hounded in, mm-hmm. you know, don't go into a car with a stranger and, you know, all right. of those things. like, I remember my parents telling me that if a stranger ever came to me and said, I'm here to pick you up, your parents, your parents sent me, we had a secret code that I, I had to ask them. Oh, what's yeah. the secret code? And they, if they didn't know, then I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have gone with them. And, sure. and hindsight, no one ever came to pick me up and never said that, but we had that in place, like a safe yeah. bail because you just never know. No, you never know. It's like that. And then, you know, there's uh, you know, if somebody says that they have a puppy or any, or an injured animal, you know, cause I'm, I've always been animal oriented. Yeah. So I was like, if no matter what they say, you don't go with anybody unless they're your mom or your dad. Because my mom's like, I will clearly tell you if it's somebody and it would be someone you already know. Yes, 100%. And that's the sad thing is that Otis, when in his confession said that he promised him candy. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, of, of course, the six-year-olds could be like, oh, yeah, I like candy. Of course. Of course. And then he, oh, gosh, oh, just. It's so it's so tragic. It is so sad. And it, I mean. Yeah he deserves his memory has been like uh, the best thing that's probably happened to child loss. Absolutely. hundred. And it's tragic and horrible, but his legacy is amazing. Yes. Autumn, uh, do you want to cite your sources? Yes. Uh, my sources were Wikipedia, deathbed confession podcasts, America's most wanted John Walsh's book, tears of rage, WPTV and lifetime. I think that was a sad story, but fitting for our 20th episode being that it is a fairly well-known one. It is, I mean, really kind of sparked our obsession with true mm-hmm. crime, Yeah, with, with the fact that, you know, John Walsh, we, you and I used to skip school and literally watch America's Most Wanted. So it did that in unsolved mysteries. (laughs) Mysteries. So, I mean, those, those things did help kick off our love of true crime or our obsession with finding truth and answers. Yes. So I thought that was really fitting. Everybody hold tight. Uh, We're going to hear from our sponsor real quick, and then we will be right back with my episode. Welcome back to the 20th episode of Murder, not murdering with Aaron and Autumn. Um, that was really tough and that was really hard to listen to and I'm sure to tell. It was, but it was our second most requested case and it deserved to be heard, I feel. Yes. And like we said on the break, um, 
I would never have done it. So I'm no, <laughs> I knew, I knew she couldn't. So I had to, I sure couldn't. Um, but I'm going to be doing my case now. It is, uh, a tricky one. Are you ready? Always. The mysterious case of Sean Paul Lanier. It's 1987 in Salt Lake City, Utah, and Margie Danielson was a 37-year-old single mother recently divorced after a 20-year-long marriage. Margie was unsure if she would ever find love again. After a year since her divorce was over, she decided it was time to give love another try. So she went to a Western bar with a friend when she notices a man who introduces himself as Sean Paul Lanier. He was very confident, very charming, and he was a gentleman, explained Margie. She gave Sean Paul her number and said they could talk on the phone just to get to know each other first. She was excited for her first date in so many years. Sean Paul arrived at her doorstep with red roses. While on the date, he revealed that he was a chef who had graduated from Paris's Le Cordon Bleu. (laughs) (laughs) He was also a bodybuilder. And he told her that he had a daughter that lived in California who meant the world to him. This was exactly the words that Margie wanted to hear. And that brought them closer together. He told her at the end of the date, he could already feel a strong connection and that he thinks that he may have met the woman of his dreams. The couple had a lot in common and Sean Paul was very affectionate, giving Margie a lot of attention. But this started to become a little overwhelming to her. He constantly showered her with flowers and taking her to dinners. He spent time with her and her daughters too. Two months into the relationship, Sean Paul takes Margie to an exclusive athletic club. He tells her he's purchased gym memberships for her and the girls. He said he wanted to buy all of them brand new workout clothes. Margie said that was way too much and not to buy the clothing. However, one day they came home to the house and found on each door hung a brand new workout outfit with matching shoes. I just froze. He didn't have a key. How did he get in? Margie was startled and really freaked out. She called Sean Paul immediately, asking him how he got into her house. He then admitted that he entered through the bathroom window. He said that he wanted to surprise her, but at this point, Margie felt violated. Not only did she tell him not to buy the clothes, but he broke into her fucking house. No kidding. Oh, there's that. That part right there is giving me chills. Right? Margie tells Sean Paul she needs a break, but he doesn't stay away for long. One day, he slips a note under her door with awful news. She called him and he told her that his young daughter back in California was in a terrible car accident and died. (gasps) He was crying. He was crying and he begged her to come over. Margie sympathized with him and went over, but something did not feel right. She told him she wouldn't come in and had an overwhelming sense of fear. He was acting strangely. He grabbed her arm. She ran. 
she got into her car and took off. She said she felt like she had just escaped something. Sean Paul calls her and explains that he was really messed up over his daughter's death and he took it out on her. He cried, then she cried. And Margie is a very empathetic person and losing a child is unimaginable. She forgives him. It brings them closer together and it becomes the first time they were intimate. She said he was very romantic and tender and it bonded them together. Okay. To me, that didn't seem like a super convenient moment to become intimate. Yeah. Uh, child death is never a time where I'm like, Ooh, now's the, now's the, no, never will I be thinking of sexy time during that. No. So that was, I mean, to me, that's a little bit red flag, but I think because she's a mother and she's a parent and has a daughter and they, you know, talked, talked it out together and it bonded them in just that kind of a way. Sometimes when you're going grieving, you just want to feel any other emotion you know? Yeah. And I mean, I'm not trying to, to shame somebody. I just am having a hard time seeing that moment as the time that I would want to do that. Absolutely. So Paul, Sean Paul's success as a chef seems to start gaining momentum when he was featured on a cooking show on TV. Margie was so proud of his success. He made it appear that money was going really well. Then Margie notices the chain that he always wore was missing. Then she found a pawn receipt. She didn't question him on on this. And then much to her surprise, he proposes with a beautiful heart-shaped diamond. And then the worries of the financial woes fade. It had been a year since the first date and they married on Valentine's Day. Almost Mm -hmm. immediately after the wedding, Sean Paul takes over household finances and tries to control the spending. Margie, once again, grew suspicious and had that strange sense of fear come over her again. So she started to snoop around her husband's briefcase. She went through each document very carefully. I noticed on his daughter's death certificate, the date she died was wrong. There were misspelled words and there wasn't a state seal. Margie explained she confronted him when she got home when she confronted him when he got home and he said he would call the hospital and get it taken care of right away. This Mm -hmm. conversation, this conversation does not satisfy Margie. She starts looking again at more documents and notices more and more discrepancies. She talks with Sean Paul and he says he can explain all of it. You ready, Autumn? I don't know because I'm already hating him. He then claimed he was in the witness protection program after getting getting involved with the mafia in New Zealand. No way, dude. And he was under an assumed name. Margie did not believe that lie, but she she went along with it so she could keep learning about the man she had just married. What happened? (laughs) I know. What happens next rocks Margie to her core. On March 20th, 1988, she gets a phone call from a friend who is watching the new show, America's Most Wanted. Stop! And the fugitive that they were highlighting was a man named 
Paul Stephen Mack. And he was wanted for two murders in California and Ohio. They showed a picture of him and her friend said he looked identical to her new husband. Okay. I knew you were going to freak out. This is so insane to me. We, I did not. And Aaron did not tell each other any of this. No, I told her today, like with our stories that already been written and we already knew what we were going to do. I told her today because I like to prepare Aaron for things that are not pleasant. If there's children involved or sexual assault, I will tell her ahead of time. Yes. It's just something that I do out of courtesy because she's my best friend. Yes. But I had no idea. No. I mean, look at, look at little Adam. I know America's most wanted. So back to the story though. Margie kept this discovery to herself. She snuck down to search his wallet. She found that he had two social security cards. And, but instead of going to the police, she decides to keep investigating. She has to be sure. She starts learning about the victims. Paul Stephen Mack, then using the alias Sean Paul Lanier, was the prime suspect for a 1981 murder of a 19-year-old Annette Huddle in Marion, Ohio. The recent high school graduate was a secretary at the Marion County Country Club, where she worked under Paul. Paul was even mentioned, had even mentioned this to his new wife, that he had worked at that very country club. So Margie posed as a prospective employer and called the club. They said they had never heard of a Sean Paul Lanier. She didn't know what to do. Annette Huddle went missing on July 8th, 1981, after telling family that she had a ride home. Four days later, a family on a family canoe trip, a family discovered her partially dressed body on a riverbank just outside of Marion. She had been sexually assaulted, but the medical examiner could not determine a cause of death. Paul cooperated with police, and he said that he hadn't seen Huddle since she left work. However, co-workers had said that Paul had offered her a ride home and invited her to smoke marijuana at his house. My sister didn't like him, said Annette's sister, Anita Huddle Cox. She said, Oh my gosh, so gross. This old man at the country club keeps making moves on me. Annette repeatedly turned down Paul's advances for three months and would even intentionally avoid him at work as much as she could. Very persistent, he would send her flowers and call often, similarly to the way he was at the beginning of Margie's relationship with him. During the investigation, authorities also discovered Paul was a convicted felon for theft, and he was soon arrested for a parole violation. The, oh police, the police searched his home in hopes of finding anything that could connect him to Annette Huddle's murder. Unfortunately, authorities found no physical evidence to link him, but he was still their prime suspect. He was sent to prison for his parole violation. Paul was released from prison in 1985 and moved to California. In Sacramento, he meets Sharon Winslow, who becomes his next wife. Like Margie Danielson, Sharon was a single mother who met Paul in a country Western themed bar. For the first time in a long time, I took a man home from the bar, said Sharon Mack. 
I found Paul so charming and he always knew what to say. Paul and Sharon married while Paul was in state, in state prison for minor charges. Did you hear that? They married while he was in prison. I mean, all I can think, Erin, is that's so romantic. Hmm. One year later, Paul was released, but quickly re- he quickly revealed the violent side of him to his new wife. On one particular occasion, Paul stormed in the bedroom after an argument and began strangling Sharon on the bed. Sharon took her daughter and left Paul that day. Paul then managed to stay under the radar until 1987 when a 21-year-old model, Karen Grace Winslet, disappeared from Sacramento. Karen was on her way to what she believed was a photo shoot for Budweiser. She had left the address of where she was going with her boyfriend. And when her boyfriend went over there to look for her, he met Paul Mack, who denied ever knowing Karen Winslet. Several hours later, Paul called the boyfriend to say he did have an appointment with Karen, but he had canceled it. Believable, not at all. Yeah, I don't believe you, Paul. Investigators interviewed Paul at his home and noticed that he had no photography equipment. They also Okay, that's suspicious. <laughs> he also looked into his criminal background and marital history and found that he had been married a total of 7 times. Margie Danielson was actually his eighth wife. Eight? Eighth wife. Yes. Wow. Karen Grace Winslet was eventually found dead in her parked car at the at a motel. Investigators could not determine an apparent cause of death until later toxicology reports detected the painkiller Percodan in Karen's system, more than 25 times the lethal limit. It was enough to probably arrest him, but I wasn't certain we were going to get a conviction at that. We had no way of putting her conclusively in his house on that day, said Sacramento Detective Bell. Paul Mack fled town, and three months later, he introduced himself as Sean Paul Lanier to Margie Danielson in Salt Lake City. Back to Margie. (laughs) She, She decided to collect Paul's fingerprints from a drinking glass and hand them over to police. She kept gathering evidence. But remember how her friend saw him on America's Most Wanted? Yes. She was not the only resident to recognize him. One day after that aired, a local Marion, Ohio resident who knew Paul called authorities to say that they knew he was in Salt Lake City. And she said she knew that because he had made a guest appearance as a chef on a TV show in Utah. Which is crazy that he went on TV knowing he was wanted, mm-hmm. but didn't, but just thought, oh, he was going to get fame and accolades, but didn't even think about the fact that he was wanted on two murder charges. Which is so, so mind-blowing Narcissist- to me. Narcissistic. The tip led authorities to Salt Lake City. They used the fingerprint to compare to F- in the FBI database, and he was already in it because of his past crimes. It was a match for Sean Paul Lanier. He is definitely Paul Mack. Authorities in Sacramento and Ohio were ready. There was a car parked catty corner from my house with two men. And the next thing I know, 
Sean Paul was jumping out the window, recalled Margie. The SWAT team witnessed his exit and a car chase began. Police finally apprehended Paul Mack and held him in Salt Lake City until he could be extradited to Sacramento. He called Margie and said he had been arrested. She asked, what for? He said he didn't know. Margie was brought in for questioning and her worst fears came true. She was devastated and sickened. In March, 1998, Paul was charged with the first degree murder of Karen Winslet and questioned about the murder of Annette Huddle. Margie testified in court against Paul. She also took the stand explaining that Karen tried to sue. Oh, no, Autumn, this is going to piss you off. You ready? Oh, yes. Paul also took the stand explaining that it was Karen who tried to seduce him, but he wasn't interested. So she became so upset that she took his prescription medication and overdosed. What? What a fucking narcissist. Also, that's the dumbest story I've ever heard. But remember, his whole thing was that he, all these women, anyone that rejected him was the person that he he w- couldn't deal with it. You know, everybody else, any of the women that dated him or his eight wives. Yes. He was eight wives. Eight oh my wives. God. Yeah. So this was a big deal. And it was so very typical him to be like, oh no, she just was really into me and was so distraught that I said no, that she took all of my prescription medications. No. The other thing is they did find that he was prescribed more um more of that medication that I mentioned earlier is actually used in dentistry. And they noticed that his dentist had given him more than the recommended dosage. And they, they never figured out exactly why or how, but he did end up getting more than the recommended amount. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Three weeks into the trial, a jury found him guilty of the first degree murder of Karen Grace Winslet and her rape. He was sentenced to 25 years imprisonment. Citing lack of evidence, authorities were never able to charge Paul Mack in the murder of Annette Huddle, and her case stayed cold. Paul Mack died in prison in 2018. He was 71 years old. But I have an update. Good, because I was about to say, what the hell? Mine was like that. During an interview with Oxygen's Charm to Death that just aired a few weeks ago, Sergeant Tim Bailey of Ohio said, I received a call from Paul Mack's attorney who represented him in California. He told me he wanted me and he wanted particularly the family to know that Paul Mack confessed to killing Annette Huddle before he died. This is not justice. And it, the good thing is it did bring some closure to Annette's family mm-hmm. and to all the law enforcement who worked tirelessly on her case. My sources were Oxygen's Charm to Death, dailystar.co.uk and news.com. So another weird connection we have, mm-hmm. not only was the... Uh, the 1981. 1981, America's Most Wanted. But the lawyer calling with the deathbed confession, basically. Right. Because 
I left this out of my story, but Otis Tool's niece told John Walsh that Otis Tool confessed on his deathbed to the murder of Adam. It's uncanny that our cases are so linked. Yes. And the only reason I didn't mention that is because it was already so much. (laughs) But the fact that you said that, I was like, oh my God. That is know. When, when you, when you said you were going to do Adam Walsh, I was like, oh my God, I cannot say that mine literally this was solved because of America's most wanted. Wow. Of course it has to be our 20th episode that we have this epic connection. I know it just blows my mind because as you're talking about it, all I was thinking is if that show didn't exist, this man would have gotten away with those murders and most likely would have probably killed Margie or someone else. Yes, 100%. So as a result of the very first case that you were talking about, mine was solved. That And the fact that I went first and you went second. I know, I know. How crazy. And I just had this poll to do Adam's story because mm-hmm. I mean, we, we get a lot of suggestions and I actually had been, working and researching a completely different one. And Mm -hmm. then I think three or maybe three days ago, I switched my story. That is just crazy. I just couldn't stop thinking about him. Mm -hmm. That's so crazy. I wrote mine well over a week ago. Yes. For all you listeners, I have had kidney stones. (laughs) Yes. It's been really awful. We weren't Autumn. planning on having such a long little break. <laughs> yeah. Autumn's been in a lot of pain and she's been to the hospital and just, you're still currently trying to pass a kidney stone. Yes. <laughs> so it's been just, it's been really tough and I'm glad that you're here for the 20th episode. Yes. And I, I kind of thought I might've had to do it on my own. I know. Cause we had a contingency plan. Cause we didn't want to go yeah. as long as we did before. Mm-hmm. I'm like, Oh, I'll just react to your story. Yeah. How but weird is it though? That <laughs> it's, I'm going to use my favorite word on the planet and it's kismet. That is the perfect word, right? I am just, I is while you were, I mean, obviously your case is fucking awful, but I was sitting on the fact, knowing that I had this, that you're going to see, hear this awful story. And then the right afterward here of two murders that were solved because of that very incident. Yes. Crazy. That is just serendipitous. (laughs) as serendipitous as a murder situation can be. Sure. Because honestly, the reason why I tell the children's stories is so that we, they're never forgotten things that, that happened because of them. And then here we are, this murder case, man, geez, I don't even have the words. I know, but can you imagine if you were sitting, if you were Margie and you were sitting there and all of a sudden your friend's like, yeah, uh, pretty sure I just saw your husband on America's most wanted for two murders. I'd be like, wait, what? That would blow my mind. First of all, that's not my dream come true. My dream come true is the unsolved mysteries thing. That you would see some rando and be like, oh, I know who that is. I've been training my whole life for this moment. Exactly. (laughs) 
No, it was, it, I, I seriously, when I, when I was first, I, what sparked it is that I was watching the episode and then I was just like, oh my God, oh my God, wait, what? But the crazy thing is, is from the very beginning, he had a very specific type that he was looking for once he, you know, outside of the younger girls, mm-hmm. he was looking for women in their mid to late thirties, single parents you know, somebody who's looking for love and Mm -hmm. he would just go way over the top with giving them affection because that's what they're searching for the most. It's a gross way to prey on women. And And then the whole child dying, like what? Right. It's just the whole thing of it is that is crazy to me that she was the eighth wife. She found that was like, wait, what? So crazy to me. I just, I I wanted to cover that one because I thought, you know, honestly, I was like, I want to give a shout out to America's most wanted. And how I had no idea that we would have this happen. This, the son, the murder of his son. I know (laughs) that started everything. Well, and it was a brand new show at that point. Oh yeah. One of the, it was one of the very first, like few episodes was that very case. Yeah, because it started 88. Yep. It's just crazy. Um, anyway, that is our 20th episode. Autumn is going to go past some kidney stones. <laughs> yes, I'm hopefully, go fingers crossed. <laughs> Everyone send me good vibes. <laughs> I'm going to go to bed in my bathrobe. Oh um, my God, dude. Yeah. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. still, it's, what is, it's 70 degrees out right now. Yeah. I need my warm bathrobe and I'm legit drinking tea. So, well, that's the other thing. When you sat down and you had your cup of hot tea in this thick bathrobe, I'm like, what in the hell? Listen, I've decided that it's fall like, now. And right. so that's what it is. I'm like sweating. Like the fans are going. Yeah. And it's um, still very much summer. No, it's over. I don't believe it. I hate it. Listen, a lady named Autumn is telling you that it's not fall yet. Every sunny day, I am Winifred Sanderson. I just open it up and I'm like, oh, another glorious morning. It makes me sick. (laughs) I love the winter. I love the rain. I love I am like the perfect Seattleite. Oh, for sure. Me too. I'm so looking forward to fall. But by the end of winter, I sure will be like, oh, I could use some summer now. I don't even know if I get like that. I don't prefer, I I don't prefer the weather like this. No, I don't (laughs) like it when it's warm, like hot. I like it when it's warm. I like having sunny days and walking to the coffee shop and all that. But honestly, the rain never stops me from any of that. We go, we do everything outside in the rain anyhow. And I was just about to say, we live in Seattle. We don't even use umbrellas. No, in fact, that's how you spot a tourist in Seattle. Yes, that is a fun fact. If you see someone with an umbrella in Seattle, they are not from here. Yeah, I flat in my hair and went to go meet some friends and I brought an umbrella because I was like, hello, hair. And I got there and they're like, are you using an umbrella? I was like, I know, I know, I know. It's just, I just flat ironed my hair. So it's so true that, I mean, that is the only reason is like, if you just had your hair done for like an event or something, maybe then, but it's so, so rare. Well, that was back when I used to dye my hair and I did not want to be leaking hair dye everywhere either. 
So it was, choice, like, it was downpouring, but that <laughs> didn't stop me from wearing high heels and, and walking. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> up and down Seattle Hills, too. Woo, good times. Anyway, we will see you next week with a brand new episode. This was this was a really interesting episode. So I hope you all enjoyed it. Please don't forget to DM us on Instagram or send us a message to info at murder, not murdering.com. If you have any suggestions and thank you so much for listening to us for 20 fucking episodes. Yes. 20 episodes. I just can't believe it. All right. Well, here's the 20 more. We'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye.